Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I'm very, very pleased to have the one and only Nicholas Wade. Uh, he was a science writer and editor with The New York Times and is the author of many fine books, including Before the Dawn, Redis- uh, Recovering the Lost History of Our Ancestors, The Faith Instinct, How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures, and the one we're going to dip into a little bit today, A Troublesome Inheritance, Genes, Race, and Human History. Uh, Mr. Wade, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Now, before we dive into the troublesome aspect of our inheritance, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about some of the resistances that uh, society as a whole, that my listeners, that some of your readers and some of your reviewers have had with uh, the the basic questions. I was struck by a quote that you have uh, in the book about some of the resistance within the scientific establishment to challenging existing dogmas. I think it was the National Geological uh, Society that resisted the idea that continents floated on the Earth's surface for about 50 years. And the quote that really came across to me was, uh, science advances one funeral uh, at a time, or knowledge advances one <laughs> funeral at a time. So before we start diving into the controversies or the, the challenges of the ideas. I wonder if we can talk about where science is with relation to the idea of genetic differences between human subspecies or groups or ethnicities or races or whatever we want to call them. Well, uh, the, the academic community uh, tends to be rather monolithic in many ways. And uh, over, over history, it will sort of veer from the right to the left and back again. And right now, for several decade, decades, it's been in a very leftist mode, uh, which is unfortunate because we who support universities don't get the benefit of objective, neutral opinions. And this is particularly so in the case of race, uh, where for rather very, very complicated historical reasons, uh, social scientists in particular, but, but the academic community as a whole have come to the view that the best way to fight racism is to deny, quite contrafactually, that it has any biological basis. Um, so this movement started really in the 1950s when everyone had the Holocaust much on their mind and, and people sort of readily accepted that it was uh, uh, best to play down the, the biological aspects of, of race. And this meant playing down evolution too. So many social scientists uh, have no use for evolution, even though it is the informing theory of biology. So you have this quite profoundly, I would say, uh, anti-scientific attitude that reigns among uh, academics uh, uh, in the United States and elsewhere. Well, and of course, there's the, a the system of peer review and of grant application and grant granting, which is supposed to keep uh, some sort of purity within the scientific community, is a sort of double-edged sword insofar as uh, if you wanted to talk about uh, race and biology and so on, you are going to face an uphill climb in terms of uh, being attacked and not just attacked like people disagree with you, but you may have your funding cut, you may not get tenure, it could be disastrous for your career as a whole. There is, I think, quite a strong chilling effect in the pursuit of these very important uh, topics in the scientific community, which does arise, I think, out of some of the peer review process. You have to have people recommend you for publication and approve your grants and so on. Uh, that's exactly the case. Uh, peer review whatever its merits and uses, and there are many, is nonetheless a, a force for conformity. 
uh, particularly political conformity. So if you don't uh, conform to the views of your peers, you stand to jeopardize your grant and your career. It's a very serious matter. So that, I think, is why we find this extraordinary uh, conformity among uh, academics ranging from you know, anthropologists to, even to geneticists, that there, that the, there is no biological basis to race. Well, and, and as you've pointed out, there were some geneticists who penned uh, responses to your book, but uh, who neglected to do the rather important task of pointing out where your arguments or your data were incorrect, which uh, again, seems a little bit below the ideal standards of scientific objectivity. Uh, yes, yeah, sure. That attack on my book was purely political. It had no scientific basis, whatever. And it showed the the more ridiculous side of uh, of this 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 sort of uh, herd the herd belief that that academics uh, have uh, fallen into. Obviously, if there were mistakes in my book, uh, how many geneticists would it take to point them out? Surely, just one. But there aren't any mistakes in my book, so therefore they had to gather a a hundred or hundred and fifty geneticists on their ridiculous letter to try and make it seem that I had made some horrible mistake, which I did not. So let's start talking about the content. And and one of the things I sort of wanted to to frame this discussion with is that uh, people on the left are, are very um, mocking and sometimes hostile towards uh, Republicans or fundamentalists or people who they consider to be uh, anti-science, uh, they deny evolution and so on. However, um, the brain is our most expensive organ. It's, it's the one that consumes most of our resources. Uh, and the idea that the human brain would remain identical across different groups uh, of humans who were separated by tens of thousands of years and inhabiting wildly divergent climates uh, and environments would seem to me to be very anti-scientific uh, itself. And, and there's nothing we need to fear about the examination of biological differences. None of them come with any moral judgments or any sort of normative conclusions about relative value or worth. There's no such thing as supremacy or inferiority. There is merely adaptation to local uh, environments. So I wonder if you could step people through through uh, the uh, sort of out-of-Africa hypothesis and uh, where the three major races, and I know you've included two sub-races in, in terms of continents, but how that process uh, uh, wove itself out genetically uh, over the past, I don't know, 100, 150,000 years or so. Well, well, the basic genetic fact is that as long as you have a, a pool of individuals who breed among themselves, uh, you'll never get sort of great... Uh, uh, variation and there'll be internal genetic variation but everyone will share in this pool but the, as soon as you start spreading this pool out so people can no longer intermarry and assuming that evolution is going to continue which it certainly will then it follows that in each of these dispersed groups evolution will now start to occur independently uh, so this is what has happened to the three major races since we separated, although it's only very recently in evolutionary time, like, like a mere 50,000 years ago uh, when we came out of Africa, and uh, Asians and Europeans separated probably 10,000 years after that. So even though the separation time is very short, nonetheless there has been time enough for evolution to continue independently in these three groups, and that is why you see the sort of the fairly minor differences, not only those that are visible to the naked eye, the, the differences in skin and hair color and physique and skull, but also probably minor differences in behavior as well. 
So as you say, the brain is not exempt from evolution any more than any other organ of the body. Everything uh, is subject to, to evolution, and evolution cannot stop. And it's enormously rapid. Uh, one of the estimates that you talk about in your book is that 8% of the human genome has changed under recent evolutionary pressure. Uh, and that is, uh, that is an extraordinary amount. Because when I was growing up, evolution was considered to be, you know, in the millions of years and so on. But uh, we've seen very rapid uh, evolution that has occurred within a few thousand years uh, among uh, human populations. I think that was a surprise to, to everyone uh, to see just how, how much, how uh, how heavy recent evolution has been. Now, in retrospect, it's, it's fairly understandable because here as a species, we were leaving our accustomed uh, habitat in the savannas of Africa, and we were exploring all kinds of totally different climates and adapting to different diets and different circumstances. There were enormous evolutionary pressures bearing down on us as soon as we started dispersing from Africa. And there are probably pressures of a different kind continuing with Africa. So all three major branches of the human race have been evolving at a pretty rapid clip in the last 50,000 years ago. And that was the very surprising result that has come out of modern studies of the human genome. Now, I wonder if you could help people distinguish between genetics uh, or genes and alleles, which I think is very, very important, because as you point out in the book, human beings share the same genetics, but it is the expression uh, in alleles, I think, that is the defining characteristic of the potential differences. Um, yes, that right. The, you're right. That is the, the important point. We, we all have the same set of genes. Um, I forget how many there are nowadays. I think that people have settled on a number of, of like... Uh, 20 or 25,000 human genes. So we, everyone on Earth has that, has genes, has that same set of genes. But there must be a variation somewhere or we'd all look like, or we'd all be clones of each other. So where the variation comes in, it's in each gene, say the gene for insulin, has, has developed minor um, differences um, from one population to another. Uh, so when you have uh, you have, so in each population you'll have sort of maybe ten or twenty versions of the insulin gene. So these these versions are simply called alleles, which means a, a, a different uh, an alternative form of a gene. So it's these alleles that make members of a family differ slightly from another, and it also it's a difference in the commonness of these alleles that make races slightly different from one another. And the question of culture, uh, to me, is has been fascinating. And I have, for, for many years, been fascinated by the question of culture and the Industrial Revolution, which we, we can get to in a few minutes. But the question of culture and its genetic basis. Uh, on the left, in general, and I think this comes out of Marxist economic determinism, there is this argument that human beings are like water. You just pour them into any container, the container being culture, uh, and the human being will take the shape of that container uh, and uh, the sort of maybe there's some mild epigenetic phenomenon, but basically we are blank slates to be written on 100% by environment. There is a lot of information that seems to be coming out of examinations of the human genome that is, uh, I don't know how to put this nicely, pushing back somewhat against the sort of blank slate or human beings as a liquid that can be poured into any cultural container. I wonder if you could step people through some of the challenges to the leftist narrative of the blank slate. Uh, 
that, as you say, has been the, the dominant orthodoxy of the social um, sciences, and it still is. I think the first sort of major crack in it, or the first major assault in it, came from Noam Chomsky with his idea that um, that language, the rules of language are so complex, you couldn't possibly expect a baby to learn them from scratch. But there must be some innate mechanism, a sort of language learning machine that allows a, a baby to to understand the the language spoken around it and to uh, build on the internal syntactical structures that its neural uh, wiring is 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 presenting itself. So so language is a very nice example of something that is a hybrid between genes and culture. The genes set up the the learning mechanism, but culture provides the whole content of any particular language. And I think there are many other aspects of our, of our mind, particularly our social behavior, that represent the same mix of genes and culture. The, the genes must supply, when you come to think of it, lots of restraining mechanisms that, that change our inherently selfish nature as individuals. And reshape us into very sociable beings who don't just go out and kill each other for our own advantage. We have all kinds of inbuilt mechanisms that restrain us from killing one another uh, and doing all, all our kinds of bad things. So it's, it's this mixture between the genes and the, the, the cultural forms in which we forbid violencing that, that give us our, our, our justice system. Um, so there must be lots of uh, behaviors that have a genetic basis, which we have the genes of which we have not yet identified, but they are surely there, and we will find them in time. Well, and I can certainly see that in a tribe, it's less overhead if people self-police for cultural or social or moral norms. In other words, if you feel guilt or shame or you self-attack for breaking a rule, then you're going to comply without the waste of resources of external ostracism or attack or, or that sort of stuff. So I can certainly see that it would liberate resources within the tribe if people self-policed. However, if they self-policed to the point where they lost their capacity for any kind of aggression, then that would cause them to be e more easily overtaken by some other tribe. Uh, yes, I think that's right. Um, I'm living in a society is very complex. You, you need to uh, be uh, 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 kind and open to to the fellow members of your community, and you need to be prepared to be very aggressive to members of outside communities, particularly in in our early days as hunters and gatherers, uh, when these little tribes were were fighting with each other almost every day in, in many circumstances. Right. Now, let's touch upon one of the challenges that uh, I think gave rise, along with, of course, the Second World War and Nazism. But the, the question of eugenics, I think, is important and needs to be discussed, because whenever we start talking about uh, genetics and populations and so on, a lot of people's minds do drift towards uh, eugenics. Now, of course, eugenics is practiced by everyone all the time. You know, who you choose to have uh, as the mother or father of your children is a part of eugenics. Uh, the welfare state, you could argue, by taking resources from richer people and giving them to poorer people is a form uh, of eugenics. However, the question of state intervention directly in fertility in terms of uh, uh, sterilizing uh, people considered to be substandard in ways that could never really be objectively defined 
Could you help differentiate people's fear of sort of state-driven eugenics programs with the natural eugenics of uh, selection by individuals and by groups for uh, fitness characteristics? Well, I think it's, it's helpful to, to distinguish between <clears throat> what you might call positive eugenics and negative eugenics. So Francis Galton, who invented the idea of eugenics, uh, his idea was was of purely positive eugenics. In other words, he wanted to encourage the leaders of society in various ways, the in intellectuals or otherwise, to breed among themselves and thus to uh, somehow to raise the, the, the quality of people in a society. That actually is very difficult to do, and in many ways it, it wouldn't work because the genes of interest are too complex to uh, en enhance in a simple uh, uh, breeding way. So Golden's idea was then taken up mostly by the left in, in both Britain and the United States. And these leftist academics changed Galton's idea of positive eugenics into one of negative eugenics because it's much easier to get rid of genes you think are bad. And it was from the eugenic programs um, set up by academic geneticists uh, at leading uh, institutions in the United States, uh, Harvard and Michigan and, and Stanford, that led to the American Eugenics Program, which was adopted almost unchanged uh, by the National Socialists in Germany, except that they added to it uh, uh, Jews and they changed the method from sterilization to murder. So uh, certainly people have a very well-founded fear of negative eugenics. And with regards to the West, uh, which has been a giant puzzle, of course, around the world that uh, was superseded historically by uh, Chinese or, or other uh, East Asian civilizations, which were far more advanced and uh, had, um, you know, complex layers of bureaucracy that were open to a meritocracy and paper currency and uh, interest rates and banks and all of these things when uh, the Europeans weren't uh, weren't quite uh, so advanced, but there has, of course, been over the last few hundred years a massive vaulting forward uh, of Western innovation, of, of technology, um, of, uh, I think, a wonderful state of mind that was described by the physicist uh, Richard Feynman, which is that all science is founded on skepticism of expertise, you know, that we go with empiricism rather than with tradition. And I've heard some of the arguments around, um, you know, that the Black Death would wipe out the poorer and therefore maybe the less intelligent people, thus liberating more intelligence. But I think you've sifted through some of the data and got some fascinating ideas ideas as to what propelled, uh, in England in particular, the Industrial Revolution, which is, I think, the single biggest event in human history in terms of changing people's capacities to live and thrive, uh, as well as uh, the innovation of the West as a whole. I wonder if you could step people through some of the arguments put forward to explain this phenomenon that has resisted uh, being explained for so long. Oh, well, the causes of the Industrial Revolution are, are very complex, so much so that... Uh, uh, there is no agreed uh, explanation among economic historians, even though it is the prime issue in economic history. Uh, but what I think is is new is uh, bringing to bear the possibility of a genetic change, uh, as you have implied. Um, so the reason this is uh, a very interesting exercise uh, is that uh, Darwin got his idea of natural selection from uh, Malthus. And Malthus was interested in the growth of the English population and in his fear that 
as population increased, it would outrun the production of food and it would lead inevitably to starvation. Uh, uh, now, as it happened, at the, at the very moment <clears throat> Malthus was writing, um, England was breaking out of, of, of the Malthusian um, trap. And so Malthus's fears did not come to pass, but they were in fact true of all previous history. But this is indeed what uh, happened re re repeatedly as populations uh, outgrew their, their food supply. <clears throat> now what Darwin uh, perceived was that uh, when people are uh, at the edge of, of starvation and are fighting for their survival, anyone who has a very slight advantage over anyone else is going to leave more children. And it was this insight that gave him the idea of natural selection. So you might step back a little and ask, well, if it was the growth of the English population um, in, in the 12th to 19th centuries that gave Darwin the idea of natural selection, maybe natural selection was indeed at work in that very population. Uh, and there is evidence from several sources that that population was changing in its social um, behavior. And we can uh, see, uh, for example, that the rates of literacy were steadily uh, uh, going up from the 12th to the 16th century, uh, to the 19th century. The rates of, of homicide were steadily going down. The rates of saving were going up. And all these differences in social behavior preceded the Industrial Revolution. So therefore, it's reasonable to ask if they may not have been, in fact, a major contributory cause of the Industrial Revolution. In other words, that there was a change in the social nature of the population, <clears throat> very similar to another major change that occurred when we made that transition from being hunters and gatherers to settled societies. That was the other big revolution in, in hu human social history, from being solitary hunter-gatherers to living in large settled societies. The Industrial Revolution, you can argue, was another equally big transition and may also have depended on a genetic change. Right. There's a, I was reminded when I was reading the book of uh, that classic exchange between uh, uh, Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, where uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald said, the rich are different from you and I, and Hemingway said, yes, they have more money. And the, the, of course, the question about the relationship between intelligence and wealth is is very complex. And I think it's fair to say that in general, and I think the data bears this out, that as IQ increases, wealth accumulation tends to increase because there's a greater deferral of gratification, uh, a more willingness to, to work hard in the moment and, and to save and to plan for the future and so on. And I think as you point out, the rich... Uh, in England were having about twice the number of surviving babies relative to the poor, which meant there were too many rich to stay in the upper class. So they kind of had to sift down like snowflakes to lower classes, bringing some of the high intelligence or high IQ genetics with them, and thus, in a sense, spreading intelligence through the population, which created a lot of the fertile conditions for the Industrial Revolution. Uh, well, there certainly was a, a trickle-down effect of social behavior. Now, I think one should be... Uh, are very careful uh, in 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 equating uh, in 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 defining intelligence as the as the most important uh, aspect of that. I think lots of different kinds of social behavior, particularly the propensity to save, i.e., to put off immediate gratification, uh, and uh, the reduction in violence, 
were were part of of what um, trickled down. Uh, now, certainly, in, uh, greater intelligence uh, does not hurt, but if you look at the world today, uh, East Asians, for example, have uh, have higher average IQs than Europeans do, uh, and their societies are successful, but not necessarily more successful than that of Europeans. So, I don't think there is a a sort of one to one correlation between uh, IQ and, and and GDP. I think I think other social behaviors are equally important, particularly trust, cohesiveness, uh, you know, willing to trust institutions. Uh, the escape from tribalism is particularly important. Um, so all these other things go into the mix. Well, I mean, and the, the question of IQ, as you point out, is only one part of, of innovation and creativity within a society. I think one of the researchers you pointed out uh, in the book, Mr. Wade, was talking about how Chinese society in particular rewarded intelligence, that 30% of the higher level mandarins came from the very lowest classes because there was a real meritocracy. Anyone could take the exams to get into the, I guess, relatively high IQ occupations uh, within the civil service. But at the same time, there was a very strong repression of dissent. And dissent has, of course, its pluses and its minuses. It can be destabilizing to existing political orders, but it also embodies the creative destruction of Western capitalism, which is the desire to overturn whatever is there with something that hopefully is better from an economic productivity standpoint. And I think this is one of the reasons why there is this stereotype that sort of the East Asian communities are incredibly great at executing, but not quite as great at innovating. uh, And there may be something to do with that. Uh, well, you put it very well. Um, it, it is a great problem as to uh, a very interesting issue as to how to account for the uh, uh, the greater average IQ of East Asian populations. So the explanation you suggest, it was these examinations um, from very early on in Chinese history that allowed the, that rewarded the, the scholars and allowed them to be rich and have, support more surviving children. That certainly could be a factor. However, uh, I think it's too early to say that that was certainly the case because scholars are still debating the issue. We don't have a final answer. Um, um, some people argue that, well, the numbers in the Mandarinate were too, too small to affect the whole population. On the other hand, you can argue that this practice went far, far back in Chinese history when the population numbers were much smaller and and uh, uh, could, could well be uh, a, a process that affects the whole population um, right now. Uh, the other thing you mentioned, that the conformity, I, I think that also empirically uh, is true. Um, East Asian societies do, do, do seem to be much more conformist uh, than Western societies uh, after the Industrial after the Renaissance. Um, so this could be something that holds back um, their, their uh, uh, economic productivity. Let's turn to the the question of aggression, um, which is one of these highly complicated and um, ambivalent about it in that aggression is kind of how we got to the top of the food chain, but it's not so great when we turn on each other. So, uh, you know, it it has its sort of good and bad. And uh, I've done um, uh, research in the past uh, talking about how uh, aggression is really a potentiality in, in terms of genetic expressions in that there were particularly young boys 
who, if not exposed to physical abuse as children, grew up to be relatively peaceful. But if they were exposed to physical abuse as children, it triggered epigenetic changes that had them almost certainly uh, end up being criminals. So when we're talking about genetic predispositions to intelligence, we're not talking about uh, some sort of deterministic train track that ends up with somebody in a jail cell or on the run. We're talking about the risks associated with a harsh environment combined with genetics. But of course, as you point out, I think it was a 90-fold decrease in homicides uh, over the past uh, seven or 800 years in uh, England. And uh, what has changed genetically uh, in, in humanity over the slow process of attempting to civilize, you know, we wild, bald apes? Uh, what has changed uh, over time genetically that has helped dampen down some of the wild aggression of our ancestors? Well, it certainly is true that there's been a, a steady decline in uh, aggression, which is very surprising because you you might well suppose that it would go the other way, that it would be the most aggressive societies that would come to be top of the heap. And and yet it hasn't been. Maybe it's through rather narrow accidents in history the, and the Mongol Empire might well have conquered uh, Europe so we could all be under uh, Mongol rule by now. But in it, for all, whatever reason, that didn't happen. Uh, and the level of violence, as Stephen Pinker showed in his... Uh, his uh, 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 wonderful uh, recent book has, has steadily declined. Um, so it is a, it is a, a major uh, uh, issue as to how that uh, happened on an individual basis. You can see that, that people who are aggressive um, toward their uh, neighbors or, or their friends uh, would soon be uh, 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 killed or ostracized by their fellows that this is certainly what happens in tribal societies if 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 someone is continually aggressive the 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 members of the tribe will sort of discuss what to do about it and usually they will assign the individual's own family to kill him um so that there is no uh, blood feud um set up um but uh, i think it's probably a separate question as to as to why uh violence between societies has also reduced and I don't see that anyone has the has the answer to that uh, question. Now, let's talk about some of the differences between state societies and tribal societies. And I, I sort of try not to divide societies into these bichromatic rainbows if it's either one or the other. So, of course, there are elements of, of tribalism within the West and elements of statism within the Middle East and, and in Africa, or sub-Saharan Africa at least. The Growth of the state relative to tribal tribalism uh, has been, I think, a pretty defining characteristic, at least of Western democracies. Could you help people understand the sort of split between these two major groupings in societies and what might promote uh, a society to go in either direction? Well, I think the, the default political organization of human societies is, is one of tribalism. Um, it's, it's one of, of kinship. Um, so... You support your family, and uh, and tribes usually composed of, of related families. And when they get so large that that people aren't very closely related, they tend to sort of split up into groups that are more closely related. So, if you take a long view of, of history, you can see that a major um, development has been the escape from tribalism which is very difficult because tribal societies can, in fact, be highly successful and highly complex. And the Mongols, after all, were a tribal society. 
the great weakness of tribal societies is succession. So when the when the chief dies, there's almost always a, a, a fight between his 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 sons as to who will succeed, and a rather long bloody period of chaos will ensue before it's all sorted out again. So the first people who escaped from tribalism were the, were the Chinese. And this, I think, was largely a matter of population um, pressure. Um, that the more, the, more, the more people you have the, and the larger units you fight in, the more necessary it is to have a, an organization based on, on merit rather than kinship ties. Uh, but once you've broken out of, of tribalism, then you're into the beginnings of the modern state. Now, it took the Europeans a, a, a lot longer to do that. It wasn't really until about 1000 AD, 1000 years after the Chinese achieved this, that, that the Europeans started to leave tribalism behind them, an event often marked by the time when the king of the Franks became the king of France. Uh, and for much of Africa and the Middle East, um, that transition has not yet occurred. Uh, I think for other complicated reasons, I think in, in Africa, it's maybe has been a matter of lack of population. Demography is very helpful and in fact, probably necessary to escape from tribalism. You just need large numbers of people in a single place to make the mechanisms of tribalism no longer efficient. In the Middle East, you've, you've had uh, people who ruled the Middle East uh, in a very rapacious uh, way, uh, ever since the first Arab uh, dynasties, uh, followed by the, uh, the Ottomans and the Mongols and then the Europeans, all these regimes have essentially ruled in the same way, which is to extract as, as many taxes from the citizenry as they could and give nothing back. So in those circumstances, it's a very rational behavior to distrust the government and to trust only your kin. Uh, in other words, you stick with tribalism because that's what works for you. Well, and I can certainly understand how tribalism doesn't provide much of a net negative as long as you're fighting other tribes. However, when you start to fight, uh, to fight the kind of armies that you can raise through a state, through taxation, through the development of a tax-collecting class that is loyal to the state rather than to a particular tribe, well, you're going to face a lot larger armies that can be generated by, say, the Chinese government than you would by some local Arab tribe. So I think then it becomes, you know, we, we have to join together, we have to get the same taxation base, we have to get the same size of armies, otherwise we're going to be overrun and incorporated into the new state in the sort of expansion of the Roman Empire kind of way. Yes, I think many people don't really like to admit the large role of military force in shaping our past and maybe even our uh, genetics. Um, but after all, we are the descendants of the people who came out top in these uh, sanguinary uh, struggles. Uh, and they lasted for a very long time. They lasted throughout our hunter-gatherer history, which was the first... 185,000 years of the human species' existence. And then they lasted through, through much of the, the sort of tribal period that, that followed. So it's only, it's only in the last thousand years or so that we've been uh, uh, free of tribalism. Right. Now, the question of the distinction or the distinctiveness between human races is something that gives people 
a lot of room to trip up and I think to get confused, sort of a God of the gaps argument, because there is, um, of course, we know that human beings are the same species, partly because we can interbreed between the races. And because of that, there's a lot of blending and there's a lot of overlap. But what are the arguments as to um, why we should differentiate in three major races and not, I think, as some of the estimates have gone as high as 63 different uh, races. Uh, but um, what are the arguments as to why we should try and narrow it down to three with the potential extra of two continental races? Oh, well, I, I don't think there there's any reason to prefer uh, one number of races over another, uh, except as a sort of explanatory principle. Um, but the concept of race is very uh, uh, fluid, so it, it really depends on what measure you're using to define race as to how many races you come up with. I, I mean, an analogy that's often used is to say, well, how many hills are there in New Hampshire? Well, it d- depends on what your definition of a hill is. So by one definition, there can be three, and by another, there can be a thousand. So it's just the same with races. It depends on how many differences do you want to f- uh, f- uh, define between groups as to how many races you come up with. But if you're just trying to understand the general situation, I think it's easiest to, to start with the fact that there are three major races, and these these follow the sort of major population splits in human history. So the first major population split is when one little group comes out of Africa and populates the rest of the world. And then this little group, as it grows in numbers, starts to uh, divide into Europeans and East Asians. So there right away you have sort of three major human groups, which the man in the street can differentiate at a, at a glance, uh, we all look sort of reasonably different. Um, uh, so there you've got three races. Well, if you follow it a little further and look at the various, start looking on a sort of continent, on a, on a geographic basis, well, the, the, the people who inhabited uh, North and South America uh, can, can be considered another race uh, since they're slightly different from it seems now there are a, a mix of, of Europeans and East Asians who got right to the top of uh, of East Asia and Siberia and then crossed the Bering uh, uh, Strait. And, and these people were not pure East Asians. They were a mixture of East Asians and Europeans. So so um, American Indians then, uh, or Native Americans, uh, uh, provide a, a fourth race. Uh, and the people who got to Australia, which was a sort of very early migration, uh, uh, and it seems not to have been repeated. And once people got to Australia, they managed to fend off all, all further invaders. So they uh, remained an isolated population. Uh, uh, and that includes people of Australia and New Guinea that was attached to it. Australasians uh, provide a, a, a fifth race. So now you can go on, you can sort of define seventh and eighth races if, if you wish to. It all depends on, on what problem you're trying to solve. Right, okay. Now, one of the reasons I think, and I know that this is a challenge to to bring this information to people, but I I think or I feel that I have a very strong responsibility or or I think those of us who are willing to explore these topics have a strong responsibility because you could argue that some very disastrous decisions have been made uh, in terms of foreign policy, uh, in terms of uh, the questions of, of warfare, of nation building, of regime change, and so on. Because there's this sort of idea that people in the West have, they look at, say, a country like Iraq, under uh, Saddam Hussein, and they say, well, I would be absolutely unbearably, horrifyingly miserable 
in that environment. So they must be just waking up every morning and wishing they were just like us. And so if we take out that dictatorship under Hussein and we attempt to impose a Jeffersonian-style democracy on Iraq, they'll just be rushing to it like kids to a candy bowl on Halloween and it's all going to come out uh, hunky-dory. This, of course, is not at all how things have uh, shaken out. And you do point out that uh, the American institutions have not successfully transplanted themselves to tribal societies like those in Iraq and Afghanistan. How can knowledge of this help prevent these kinds of disastrous decisions that are made with arguably good intentions, but with almost uniform, uniformly disastrous results? Well, our sociologists have totally let us down in that because they deny, are, deny or are not interested or pay no attention to evolution, they therefore fail to acknowledge that there could be genetic and therefore long-standing differences uh, between societies. So because they haven't told us that, no one acknowledges or is aware of the high probability that the institutions of every society are not purely cultural. They have a genetic basis. And although this genetic basis is, is probably pretty similar because humankind is, is uh, all a single species and we're all very close to each other genetically. Nonetheless, because evolution has occurred independently in these societies for the last sort of 40,000 years or longer, the genetic basis for these institutions may be slightly different. That means, although, although behavioral genes can certainly be overridden by culture, nonetheless, there is a, a much profounder difference between Iraqi institutions and American institutions than the sociologists have told us. They keep telling us everything is cultural and therefore it can be easily changed. But this is false. It's not just cultural. It's culture plus a, a certain measure of genetics. We don't really know how big or small. And this accounts for the inertia of institutions. They're rather slow to change in any society because they're based on genetically influenced social behaviors which differ from one major society to another. So that's why you should be very cautious and humble in trying to transplant an American institution into a non-American or non-European society. By and large, it doesn't work. And I, I think our experience in Haiti and Iraq and Afghanistan, it's all pointing the same way. That this doesn't, doesn't work. So be a little careful about how you plan to do things. Well, I think it's the old argument that the, if the woman doesn't love you for who you are, kidnapping her isn't going to change her mind. And of course, uh, uh, these countries, uh, these cultures have had the example of the West for hundreds of years, or at least you could argue over the last 50 years in very vivid, you know, movies and, and music and, and books and all of that. And a lot of them have not made that particular transition. And so the, it, it is that their cultures and their institutions are deeply rooted. And to our eyes, they look horribly unjust. But to their eyes, our institutions look horribly flawed as well for a variety of reasons. And I think that basic mistake of looking at other cultures and saying, well, they just want to be like us. And if we have to go in with force to turn them into us, don't worry, they'll thank us later. Like, don't worry, honey, the fact that you're in the back of my, my windowless van being driven to Vegas for a marriage, you'll love me afterwards. I mean, we would never accept that in an individual level, the use of force to impose values. Uh, but uh, we seem to have very little problem with it to the, the absolute disaster of the military 
Middle East and now with the migrant wave through to Europe of, of imposing that on other cultures with no sense of how in, intransigent a lot of these institutions are. Sorry, that's not even a question. I just want to sort of put that, that point no, out there I and get your thoughts. I agree with you entirely. And it, it, it implies the very important point that our institutions are not superior to other people's. Our institutions work best for us, just as Iraqi institutions work best for them. Now, it's it's true there may there are sort of big disadvantages in tribal institutions, but it's up to the Iraqis to figure out how to make the transition from tribal to a, a modern state. Just as it, just as the Europeans made that transition, not without a, a hell of a lot of war and 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 uh, and, and turbulence, um, but it, it's something that each society has to go through. Um, separately, and and we should uh, recognize, as you say, that each institution uh, grows organically out of the nature of the people who it serves. Well, it's it's like in in manufacturing a pill. Like the first pill is going to cost you ten billion dollars, and the second pill is going to cost you a dollar. So coming up with the institutions in the West um, was hugely difficult and hard and bloody, as you point out. If anybody who wants to reproduce them, it's not like the West has a patent on the separation of church and state, and you have to pay billions of dollars to. Uh, whoever came up with the idea to implement it. Anybody can implement it who wants, and if they don't want to, we should listen to them. Now, the other thing that goes on, and this is more within the West domestically, there's this game, it's a rather dark and deadly game in some ways, it's played by the left. And what they do is they say, we're going to look at the field of human endeavor uh, uh, across um, uh, particular ethnic groups or genders, and we're going to find discrepancies uh, in outcomes. And we are then going to ascribe all discrepancies in outcomes to prejudice, to bigotry, to racism, to sexism, to misogyny, or whatever. One of the things I find fascinating about the examination of the the contact or overlap points between genetics and culture is that the disparities in outcomes between particular groups, and we can go all the way from the very top in the West, which is the Ashkenazi Jews, clocking in at, what, 115 IQ and 120 plus when it comes to verbal skills, uh, down to uh, uh, blacks uh, who are clocking in at around uh, 85 to, to 90 in terms of IQ. And this, again, doesn't explain everything, but if we accept that IQ has some relevance to success within an IQ-based society. Obviously, the IQ in sub-Saharan Africa was perfectly matched to that environment, but North America is not that environment anymore. Is there not some capacity for us to at least push back on the argument put forward by the leftists that all discrepancies in outcomes must be the result of prejudice if we can start to look at the underlying fundamentals of genetics and culture, which doesn't make us complacent, but simply gives us a more factual place from which to start to alleviate some of these differences? Um, Yes, I I would certainly agree. I mean, the discrepancies, I don't think, are all due to intelligence, so that certainly helps, and they could be due to sort of hard work and, and persistence. Uh, to any other uh, uh, human traits, uh, but but it's certainly true that the differences in in effort and ability, at least in a true meritocracy, will by definition explain most of the differences in outcome and the role played by uh, prejudice and, and discrimination. Uh, I I would think is is small and continually diminishing. 
Well, and there is, of course, the environmental factors to, to help make that case. I wonder if you can step people through some of the exa- the big example that is cited in your book, one of the many, uh, is the difference between North and South Korea, where, of course, the populations are genetically indistinguishable. Oh, right. Well, that's a very interesting uh, uh, test case. Uh, uh, and, and there, I think you have to as- ascribe the great difference in outcomes to institutions. So North Korea is a repressive autocracy, and uh, South Korea is a, is a sort of a, a vibrant uh, modern economy. Uh, so, so surely the difference in, in institutions must be a sufficient uh, uh, explanation for those uh, uh, different outcomes. And it also, I think, helps to explain, uh, as you point out, over $2 trillion has been poured into the third world by Western countries and, and other civilizations with, uh, I mean, the, the results have certainly not matched expectations. Let's at least go that far. And uh, given the intransigence, I mean, we had uh, Charles Murray on the show uh, a little while back, and, and he, of course, uh, with the bell curve, talked a lot about IQ, but he's also talked about, even if we say it's 100% cultural, nobody knows how to change another person's culture anyway. Nobody knows how to go into another culture and rewire it from the ground up. So the intransigence of modes of existence within particular societies does not appear to be very much open to outside influence. Maybe something that comes from within might be more revolutionary, but it does go, I think, a long way. Taking this approach goes a long way towards um, helping to explain why uh, certain goals have not been achievable uh, when we try to sort of help other groups. Uh, I think that that's right. I mean, poor countries are are poor and, and rich countries are rich not because of differences in resources, but because they have different institutions. Uh, so how much aid you pour into a country, unless you change its institutions, uh, all that money is going to be wasted. And, and that is largely what we see through uh, from a lot of foreign aid invested in, in African, many African countries and elsewhere. Uh, as you apply, it doesn't really matter if these institutions are, are genetic as I've been arguing, or purely cultural, it's sufficient to observe that they're long enduring and hard to change. So unless you change them, you won't see any improvement in results. Now, just to sort of close off, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your decision process in taking on this kind of topic. It is not a topic that comes without cost. It is not a topic that comes with great social accolades and, and ticket tape parades and thank heavens you, you published this work. Obviously, there are some people like myself and others who very much appreciate the way that you've put together the evidence in a very readable and entertaining and erudite fashion. But you must have, you must have, of course, known that, you know, especially since people saw what happened to Hernstein and Murray with the bell curve and, and of course, what has happened to um, uh, James Watson recently talking about human biodiversity and, and uh, other people. What was your thought process uh, in deciding to write this book? And it is a huge investment in, in time and research and so on. And, and what, is the resu- what have the results been uh, positive and negative of bringing this kind of information to, to the forefront? Well, maybe I was a little naive, but uh, you know, my job has, has been as a science writer. Um, so uh, when I worked for the New York Times, I was uh, you writing a lot about the, the decoding of the human genome. Uh, and uh, you know, science writers are always looking out for topics they can turn into books. Um, uh, so I soon began to realize that 
that the genome was pr producing lots of information about human races, and yet no one was writing about it. And when I interviewed people, they were strangely reluctant to talk about it. So, <laughs> so sorry, just interrupt, but it's sort of, you look, you see a market opportunity, not necessarily a smoking crater, uh, which is maybe what it sometimes turns out to be for people. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, right, yeah, this was, it just seems to me this was a great topic for a book. Um, I'd never taken any particular interest in race before, and I'm not particularly interested in it now. Um, it was just a book topic. Uh, and one which I thought it was my duty to write about because, you know, it's certainly an important subject and lots of new information relevant to it was being produced and no one was writing about it. So therefore, it just seemed to me a pretty obvious proposition to write a book about it. Well, obviously, I realize it's, it's controversial, um, but I just assumed that if one laid out the facts uh, as I did and... Uh, uh, bearing in mind that you like many journalists who write books, essentially I'd written all my book in daily articles for the newspaper. Um, so the book is square, rests squarely on, on the sort of 20 or so articles I wrote about human races and the genome in the New York Times. So I assumed that that would, that people would be by now sort of familiar with the subject and with the drift I was taking. So my first, the first part of the book, uh, as I point out, is is purely factual, and it's based on what I wrote in the New York Times. The second half is more speculative. Uh, we've discussed a lot of it here, and I thought, well, people will find that interesting and agree or disagree with it as they as they wish. So I'm very happy with the book. Um, I wouldn't change a word of it. I think it forms a useful service. Um, uh, you know, I've now retired from the New York Times, so I don't really mind uh, when leftist scientists sort of act up and 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 sign letters condemning me, it makes them look ridiculous, not me, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I just hope that as people get more acquainted with um, the facts, they'll come they'll come to realise that I'm broaching a subject that needs to be broached, that has to be dealt with sometime. That I've dealt with it in a reasonable, uh, non-racist, uh, equitable way, and I hope that. Despite the heavy criticism the book received when it first came out, people will come to see in time that it was a useful contribution. Oh, absolutely. And I just wanted to say from a reader's standpoint, uh, I was, uh, when I, I first got the book, I'm like, oh, good. It's very long. And, and, and as I went through it and I was pausing to take notes and, and talk to my friends about what, what ideas were brought up and very stimulating on just about every page. I can't tell you the bitter disappointment that I had when I realized that the last quarter is all annotations and references and so on, because those aren't that much fun to read. Uh, so <laughs> I was very disappointed when I came to the end, uh, and I hope that you will continue to, of course, I'm sure you will, uh, to to share the, the elegance of your pen and the insightfulness of your intellect with the world. We'll put links to this book below, and perhaps we can lure you back another time to talk about the Faith Instinct book, which I also found to be fascinating. Uh, but um, yeah, the, the book is called, just in case you're listening to this, and can't directly click on, on getting a hold of your own copy. The book is called A Troublesome Inheritance, Genes, Race, and Human History. It will be noted uh, on the video low bar in the description below. You can click on it to get your own copy, and it will also be attached to the notes for the podcast. Um, Mr. Wade, thank you so much, of course, for the, your contribution to human knowledge and for your time today. It was most enjoyable. Thank you, Stefan, so much. I much enjoyed the interview.